John Grimm and Mary Evelyn Tucker, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. Hello, Michael. You both are historians of religion uh, who uh, are now based at Yale University. You were both uh, senior lecturers and scholars there, uh, teaching in the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, as well as the Divinity School and the Department of Religious Studies. Uh, and you've had a, a really interesting uh, career working at the interface of religion and the environment. Um, and uh, I want to start uh, with you, Mary Evelyn. Uh, you recently edited a book of Thomas Berry's uh, uh, essays called Evening Thoughts. And for those of our listeners who don't know Thomas Berry, could you tell us who Thomas Berry is and what you regard as his central message for our time? Well, it's wonderful to begin with Thomas Berry as our primary teacher and mentor and colleague. Uh, who married us actually uh, 29 years ago this month. Oh, how wonderful. Yes, it's truly, truly wonderful, and we feel immensely blessed. Uh, we just came from visiting him this past weekend, and at 92 years old, he's still going strong, and uh, so that's um, great news for all of us who have been influenced by his vision, really, of the universe as a primary revelation of the sacred. Say. And he has put us back in touch with um, the immense scale and depth and dimension of the universe as it's emerged over its um, almost 14 billion year evolutionary history. And he's given us also this sense of the Earth as, uh, as a numinous presence in that vast universe. Um, so that would be saying it in its simplest terms, but he's made us understand and feel this as story, and a story that gives us a grounding and direction, and, and in fact, an enthusiasm for life. <laughs> That's probably the way to say it best, the real feeling for the beauty of life um, for which we're now responsible. And as I understand Barry's work, uh, he is a, a Catholic uh, uh, trained as a as a uh, uh, a Catholic uh, priest. Is that correct? He is, but also a cultural historian is his primary area. Mm -hmm. And uh, early on, he uh, he studied uh, Teilhard de Chardin in some depth. Is that also right? That's exactly right. And maybe John wants to say something about that. Yes, K.R. Deschardins has been a major influence on Thomas's thought, and Thomas would identify that influence uh, in relationship to the sense of story. That Teilhard was uh, one of the first, uh, a geologist himself, and one of the first to really identify the universe story, the emergence of the universe, as that story, that mythic dynamic that uh, enabled us to reflect upon ourselves in a new way. So Chardin, uh, I believe, was born in the 1880s, and his primary book is The Phenomenon of Man. And uh, in it, as I remember, he, he left the traditional interpretations of the book of Genesis in, in favor of a much uh, broader interpretation, uh, which got him in some trouble with the Catholic Church. There was some uh, difficulty in Teilhard's life with regard to uh, the modernist controversy at the turn of the century, and there was difficulty with uh, 
many in the, uh, the Vatican uh, dimensions of the Catholic Church, especially with regard to new biblical scholarship. And uh, Teilhard's address of evolution, I think, is one of his singular accomplishments. And the whole religion and science dialogue harkens back, harkens back to Teilhard in many ways. Teilhard was really a, a mystical figure as well as a scientist who had this immense experience of the, what he called the divine milieu, the presence of, of the divine in the forces and the powers of, of evolution itself and of matter and spirit evolving towards greater consciousness and greater complexity. And that's been an inspiration for Thomas, Barry, for Brian Flynn, and, and certainly for ourselves as well. Uh, but Thomas Berry ended up being not uh, entirely uncritical of, of Chardin's work. He felt there were some ways in which Chardin was limited uh, by his time. Could you describe what those are? I think that's helpful, Michael, to, to reflect on that, that uh, Teilhard uh, was a person of his times, and Thomas felt especially that Teilhard's emphasis on the human, tended towards an anthropocentric or a human-oriented emphasis, and that uh, Teilhard wasn't able to situate the human within the larger community of life in ways that would be helpful for us today. So in that sense, Thomas uh, Berry does uh, help to provide a corrective to Teilhard, and it's an appreciative critique of Teilhard. And he was also very aware of Teilhard's over-optimism of building the earth and of a technological um, hopefulness that probably would uh, meet with a lot of skepticism today. And, and another area of, of um, concern for all of us was that Teilhard, as John said, is part of his times and wasn't as open to other world religions as, as we are, are these days and certainly as Thomas Berry was. So even though he lived in China for many, many years, he had very little appreciation for the Confucian or Taoist or Buddhist tradition. And I think it's, it's interesting also, Michael, that this uh, sense of cosmology is a jumping-off place where Thomas Berry not only learned from Teilhard the sense of the emergent universe story, but also Thomas Berry saw within the religious traditions their attention to cosmology or a creation story. And so his entry into the cultural study of religions brought him to a realization that cosmology is at the heart or the center of, of religious traditions. And if we go more deeply into uh, Barry's thinking a bit, uh, th at the end of uh, the book, Mary Evelyn, it wasn't clear to me whether this was Barry's work or yours. The first appendix describes 12 principles for understanding the universe. Is that Barry or is that you or some combination of the two? Well, you flatter me to think uh, it would have been me, but um, it's very much Thomas Barry's. Um, he came up with with those twelve principles at least twenty years ago, and uh, along with his principles for Earth jurisprudence. So these are some of his trying to make simple and clear for people um, what the ideas of like differentiation or subjectivity or communion might be. And I think it's also humorous and helpful to reflect that uh, over the years, as we worked with Thomas since the late sixties, these uh, uh, statements of principles such as the 12 principles, at one time they might have been 10 or 9, and then they were 11. And I say humorous because Thomas himself uh, did not bring these forth fully developed from the mind of Zeus, but rather they worked themselves out over time too. So 
he was revising and rethinking many of these ideas over the years. So the first of them, just to give our listeners a sense, I, I want to read it. The universe in its full extension in space and in its sequence of transformation in time is best understood as a story, a story known in the 20th century for the first time with scientific precision through empirical observation. The greatest single need for survival of the earth or of the human community in the 21st century is for an integral telling of the great story of the universe. This story must provide in our times what mythic stories of earlier times provided as the guiding and energizing sources of the human venture. So that gives us just a sense of what you've both been reflecting on, uh, that, that Barry had a sense both of the power of science enabling humanity to see the scientific story of the universe for the first time. And also at the same time, as I understand, he saw humanity as playing a very special role in the universe that, that we, in a sense, had been evolved uh, by the creative force, whatever we call it, as the eyes and the understanding through which the creative force could see itself. Now, do I have that right? That's my own interpretation. Yes, I think that's very, very well put. And this sense of uh, an inspiring and guiding force of the universe, um, his, his essay, The New Story, ends with this sense, if we can, if the universe evolved um, and brought forth the galaxies and stars and planets and, and moved towards the Earth and the, the emergence of life itself, that we can rely on these huge, vast, uh, cosmological forces for guidance into the future. And that's one of his great gifts to our present moment, that the human does have a special role, and that's why the ecological crisis needs this, from his view, sense of a story to orient us in our, in our great work, as he would say, for the planet and its survival. And so, there are these provocative and challenging dimensions of this thought also, for example, following from uh, Teilhard, uh, Thomas was very aware of Teilhard's reflection on the work of science by the scientist as a meditative act. So in that sense, a living cosmology, the scientist engaged with the world and wonder in the world. And yet Thomas would raise the question that when science itself believed it was a cosmology, in other words, science standing in place of the world and its own theories and its own reflections, replacing the world, Thomas found that very problematic. So it's really, it's very interesting to see the provocative and challenging nuances of this first principle. So going on, I'd like to read the fifth and sixth principles together. Earth, within the solar system, is a self-emergent, self-propagating, self-nourishing, self-educating, self-governing, self-healing, and self-fulfilling community. All particular life systems must integrate their functioning within this larger complex of mutually dependent Earth systems. And then the sixth principle, the human emerges within the life systems of Earth as that being in whom the universe reflects on and celebrates itself in a special mode of conscious self-awareness. The human is genetically coded toward a further cultural coding invented by the human community with remarkable diversity in the various regions of Earth. 
So in a sense, that sets up uh, a conversation about uh, an extraordinary piece of work that the two of you have done at Harvard University as co-directors of the Forum on Religion and Ecology, uh, where you organized uh, 10 conferences on world religions and ecology at the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard and edited 10 volumes uh, from these conferences. Uh, John, uh, one of your special interests is indigenous uh, uh, traditions, and uh, you wrote an essay on the website um, for the Forum on Religion and Ecology, which is an excellent uh, website, about indigenous traditions and, in a sense, the challenge of understanding their wisdom because they aren't a religion in the same sense, uh, in the, even the same broad sense, uh, that the other uh, nine traditions that you looked at are. Yes, I often use the word lifeway, Michael, to, uh, to suggest uh, that, that that dimension of religion uh, among indigenous traditions. And by this term, lifeway, I'm trying to get at an embracive approach that we tend to separate, say, economics and policy and governance or a law apart from religion. But in the indigenous setting, these are interwoven so that the religious and spiritual dynamics are, are apparent and are interactive in all of these dimensions. Maybe the example that strikes me so poignantly today is the death yesterday of Corbin Harney, a major spokesperson for the Newe or Shoshone people of Nevada, and his decades-long effort to bring the the nuclear uh, uh, armament issue and the, the testing sites in Nevada and the effect on his people, his, his tireless work over the decades to bring that issue in a spiritual and deeply religious way and all of the environmental issues. So he's also one of these teachers who has given so much over the years and his passing is much mourned by his people and, and those involved in these larger issues. But that would be one example, I would think, of someone whose who's religious impulse or their lifeway impulse involved them in these larger issues. I saw the notice of his death. He died of cancer, and I wonder if his cancer was related to the uh, nuclear uh, 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 industry uh, that was on their land. Yes, I'm, I'm not able to say clearly, but I, I'm interested, Michael, in in the resonance of this type of question with the principle that you read from Thomas too about the earth as primary healer. And I think this is something that Corbin was, was uh, very clear in trying to focus the question of the nuclear activity and the effect of nuclear radiation on all of us as, as also involving the earth and our relationship to the earth, that he was raising deeper and broader questions even than his own health but certainly related to his health, too. The Earth, the earth is primary healer. You know, and Michael, I think this is where your magnificent decades-long yeah. work at Commonweal has such a resonance with what um, Thomas has said in the quotes that you've given us and in the work that we're, we're trying to do, because we do feel we're all part of a great, not just a great work, but a great healing that's at this moment in human history. And that there, as Thomas would say often, there, we can't have healthy people on a sick planet. And something like nuclear testing, even in desert sites, 
which is which are filled with various life forms, clearly, and, and peoples who have lived there um, for for millennia. Um, that we need to remember the poisoning of our earth and the pollution of our water and our air and our seas is causing um, an extinction of life forms, of, of fish and birds. And this is where we began the environmental movement with Rachel Carson and the, the Silent Spring. So we're at a new moment of understanding how can we live in, a, in an extinction of species um, where we need to go forward and renew the earth, re restore ecosystems, and restore the, the health of the planet. And again, it's, it's where your work and, and ours, I think, meet. Thank you. And actually, I don't know if you both know that Thomas Berry was out at Commonweal for two uh, retreats many years ago. And uh, so we were actually very honored to have him uh, here at that time. Um, Mary Evelyn, you have also both worked closely with Matthew Fox uh, in the Bay Area and his tradition of uh, creation spirituality. Uh, how do you see his contribution uh, in this lineage that we're discussing? Well, I think Matt Fox, who's been also much influenced by Thomas Berry and, of course, has worked closely with Brian Swim, has been a leader in this formation of creation spirituality, drawing largely on the um, Western traditions, especially Christianity and the indigenous traditions. And I think his sense very early on of original blessing of creation as, as a blessing, not as original sin, has been uh, a signature image for the sense that Thomas would, would suggest of celebration is, is the purpose of the human in relation to these magnificent seasons. We've just gone through the solstice and the high energy that, that summer induces in us, um, I think is, is indicative of this powerful need to, to feel ourselves enveloped in the, the rhythms of the earth, in, in the body of the earth, um, in the animal and spirit presences of the earth. And, and Matt has um, helped to inspire this in many, many people um, in various parts of the U.S. and and, uh, and elsewhere. So Matt and Brian Swim have, have been um, very important colleagues in our work. And uh, Fox, uh, as I understand, uh, born in 1940, was uh, originally a Catholic priest. Uh, and uh, then uh, in, 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 uh, in 1992 uh, was dismissed from the uh, Dominican order. Actually, prior to that, very interestingly, he was forbidden to teach theology by Cardinal Ratzinger, who is now Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. Uh, then, in '92, he was dismissed from the Dominican order, and in '94 uh, uh, was ordained as an Episcopal priest by Bishop William Swing of the Episcopal Diocese of uh, California. And I was uh, very struck uh, in reading that in, in 2005, while preparing for a presentation in Germany, uh, Fox was moved to prepare 95 theses of his own, which he had translated into German and on the weekend of Pentecost, uh, arranged to nail them to the door of the Wittenberg Church, where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses in the 16th century. So... Uh, 
Fox in these theses was calling for a new reformation in, in Western Christianity. And I assume that that reformation is very much along the lines of uh, Thomas Berry's uh, uh, work. I sense there's a, a broad call among people who are awakening to this issue now towards a, an ecological reformation. And uh, I think that's very helpful, especially on the, the Protestant side of Christianity, to find in that language and in that type of uh, his, the historical resonance of that period what happened in the Reformation to, uh, to, to awaken a new religious understanding I, I sense that Matt is, is a very good example of someone who is exploring this lifeway dimension, trying to see the, the original blessings of the cosmos that we live in and how it, that understanding and awakening to cosmology begins to inform uh, dimensions of our life that we've separated out or, or considered as totally different realms. And I think what is interesting is that within all of these traditions, as they're awakening to ecological crisis and, and struggling to respond to the death of life um, on the planet, that a variety of approaches are emerging even within Christianity. Um, I attended a conference in, a couple of months ago at the Vatican on climate change um, where there is a very clear and keen concern about climate change from the point of view of the effect of the poor around the world. And, and there is probably, um, I think, going to be an encyclical from this pope. So, you know, he has conservative views on some things, but he actually has um, thought about the environment and is very open to it. Um, and uh, so we're hoping for an encyclical in that regard. But as well, the Greek Orthodox yes. patriarch has been, an, has been a huge leader on these issues and has had symposiums titled Religion, Science, and the Environment, um, especially focused on water. And we've attended ones on the Baltic and the Adriatic. And in September, we'll be going with, with him and, and other environmental leaders, especially from Europe, to uh, the Arctic to highlight climate change there. And he and the last pope issued a statement in Venice at the end of the Adriatic Symposium on the environment. All of these statements are available up on the Forum on Religion and Ecology website. Um, and uh, so we, while there's a great mixture, there's positive emergence um, and uh, coming forward, I think, on these religions. Yes, and the World Religions and Ecology Project that we've undertaken also uh, brings uh, to mind the work of uh, the Dalai Lama, that uh, he has also highlighted environmental issues significantly in so many of his addresses. Yes, I was going to ask you both about the Dalai Lama because in some ways he seems to have captured perhaps almost more than any other spiritual leader of our time the, the kind of tone uh, that speaks to the non-religious as well as the religious uh, in terms of an inclusive spirituality uh, that really so many people find compelling. What do you think it is uh, about his message that that so resonates across so many different communities of uh, practice? Well, I heard him first many, many years ago when I was at Columbia, um, and there were other graduate students studying Tibetan Buddhism. And 
this was um, in the late 70s, and I've heard him a number of times since. And I think, as we all know, he carries some special sensibility in his person, I think, of a depth of joy even in the midst of a very suffering world. And he seems to penetrate people's hearts with the sense of endurance and humor and um, levity and a, a mindfulness that's just astounding considering his own life journey, as I would um, discuss it with my students in my class on Buddhism, his journey across those Himalayan mountains out of Tibet to settle into northern India and to establish Tibetan Buddhism there and where John and I also visited in the south of the Tibetan community near Bangalore, this, this endurance of the Tibetans with the leadership of the Dalai Lama to continue their culture and religion has been astounding and I think immensely inspiring. But in the midst of all of that, he has looked, he has been so forward thinking about the environment um, that I think this has been hugely inspirational um, to people because Buddhism contains this magnificent sense of the sentience of life, of all life forms, um, and of course of the detachment of the human to their own ego nature, so that we can embed ourselves in these changing um, and, and dynamic processes of nature. And that's his great gift to us. And this, uh, this capacity also to manifest so much authenticity in the face of misperception. I recall at one gathering when uh, two religious leaders, a Christian leader and the Dalai Lama were on the podium and the moderator gestured to the Christian and said, well now you're a theist, and to the Dalai Lama he said, and now you're an atheist. And the misperception, while the, the literal translation of the terms may be apparent, the misperception is to somehow label the Dalai Lama as someone who doesn't have that depth of compassion that he embodies. And these types of misperceptions, I find, uh, extend into our, say, reading of Islam also. Rarely is uh, Islam uh, considered in this question of religion and ecology, but such a Islamicist as uh, Syed Nasser also raises such exquisite insights from the Islamic tradition into the human and relations between the human and the earth. Yes, I'm glad that you raised the question of Islam, because it seems to me that in our time there's almost an obligation to raise up the beauty of that tradition in the West uh, and to uh, speak to its equal dignity with all the other great traditions. And I'm often struck, I wonder if the two of you are, that one could argue that the future of the earth to a considerable degree is, is going to be determined by whether specifically the Abrahamic uh, uh, traditions can reestablish uh, a harmonium uh, among themselves uh, in understanding spirit or whether they uh, will continue this uh, extraordinarily uh, destructive uh, path on which they're now embarked. Have you both reflected on that question? Well, of course, it's uh, on the minds of so many of us as we look at the Middle East and the tensions and the war there and, and the Palestinian and Israeli situation, to say nothing of Iraq and, and Iran. And, um, of course, we have traveled in that region, and we were in Iran in 2009, 
2001 in the summer and 2005 for a conference that the Iranian government um, sponsored with the United Nations Environment Program on, on the environmental issues facing that region. And from our view, um, that one of the great tasks of interreligious dialogue um, is to see the depth issue of the survival of the planet and the region on water issues and, and things along this line that will overcome the differences of these religions. Already there's, there's cooperation on the Jordan River, for example, of, of these different religions. And that gives us a source of, of hope amidst these uh, immensely dispiriting conflicts. John, do you want to add to that? Yes, I'm the head myself towards uh, the, some of the historical issues. And I'm reminded that uh, in the colonial period, in the uh, especially late 18th and 19th century, within Islam, there was a very sharp criticism of its mystical or Sufi tradition, that the, um, the, the diminishment of Islam in relationship to European colonial powers was laid at the feet of this uh, mystical uh, traditions of Sufism, and that uh, much that was missed at that time was the deep embeddedness of, these, of this mystical tradition in the Quran itself. And I find now that with the uh, emergence of an ecological voice within Islam, that it also is embedding itself in Quranic understanding. And this is very important for Islam, not only to have this basis, this fundamental understanding of living cosmologies within Islam as embedded within its own scripture, but then also to move into the natural world with a confidence that the natural world speaks to us about our own intelligence as well as the creative of, of presence. And this in Islam, I find, is, is, is extremely important. Yeah, and the Islam and Ecology volume is being translated into Arabic, into Farsi, and into Urdu. And the work in Indonesia, I think, should be also be uh, remembered, the largest Islamic country in the world. Um, there are many of the imams there who are working on this issue of the environment. Um, so this is below the radar screen, but still, I think, extremely effective work going on. You both have been involved in clearly interfaith work. I don't know if you know the term that I was found to be useful to me, intrafaith work. Have you heard anybody use that term? In a sense, Michael, of a, a tradition reflecting uh, upon itself? Uh, no, although that would be a logical explanation of it. But what it, what it refers to, rather, is that it refers to not simply the sort of uh, mutual understanding and tolerance of different faiths, but rather, uh, I was going, John, to your point about the, the mystical tradition, the Sufi tradition in Islam, that it seems to me that in, in, in almost every faith tradition, uh, I'm actually reminded, Mary Evelyn, that, that you spoke once uh, at a gathering I was at, of the different religions as pods of a single consciousness in some sense. And it seems to me that the mystics in all the traditions have have sometimes been able to capture that awareness that uh, there was an intrafaith, uh, intrafaith as opposed to interfaith, uh, higher level or deeper level of awareness. Uh, and uh, that while one finds that in all traditions, 
it seems to me that some traditions have been able to more easily make that explicit in their exoteric as well as their esoteric uh, uh, approach to life. So, for example, uh, the Hindu tradition, uh, I think of the Baha'i tradition, the Sufis, the Quakers, the Universalists, it seems to me that those are among those who've been able to explicitly acknowledge uh, that, in effect, that there's an underlying oneness, that there may be many paths, but there's a single truth. Uh, and, and I wonder, you're both historians of religions, and I'm a, a real novice in this field, uh, but can you reflect on the question of whether acknowledging uh, that there is an underlying oneness is indeed uh, easier theologically for some traditions than it is for others? Well, I think that's an extremely important point. And, of course, on some profound level, um, we as humans seek that deep unity of things. Uh, we look for it in the natural world. We look for it in our own interior journeys. Um, and I think that some of this has been expressed by what's called the transcendental unity of religion, Fritjof Schuon, and uh, people such as Houston Smith and um, Sayyid Hussein Nasser have been very strong proponents of this unity of world religions. And clearly in the mystical traditions, such as you've named and as John has referred to, the Sufis and others, um, there is this sense of, of a unity beyond difference and uh, experience um, internally and, and so on. And I think that's, that's very, very valuable um, and important. Um, it is as well, and Thomas has always reminded us of this, um, that this, the differences are equally uh, inspiring and, um, and, in fact, noteworthy. Um, you could say all paths may lead to one source and so on, but um, to celebrate these remarkable differences, um, such as the traditions I study in East Asia of, of Confucianism and Taoism and their celebration of the change and dynamic um, force within things and their understanding of qi as that which um, you know, fills the universe and fills the human. These are very different approaches and, and very much um, the, the qi notion of vital force is a very unified idea of matter and spirit that's quite different from a Western approach. So yes, celebrating unity and yes, also um, experiencing and reflecting on diversity, I think is, is our task right now. I'm very pleased that Mary Evelyn took the conversation towards East Asian traditions and qi, and I want to encourage her to continue that perhaps in relation to the next question, but I, I wanted to bring to mind an interesting example that uh, both of us just experienced in our, uh, in our reading together when we, we go for a walk or whatnot, we'll take a piece of literature and reflect upon it. And we happened to pick up the Bhagavad Gita and we're reading some passages to one another. And we, uh, we raised the question to each other, how is it that a text in which the protagonist, Arjuna, is in the midst of a battlefield and he lays down his weapons and he resolves not to fight because these are his kinspeople, kinsmen, on the other side. And we reflected to each other, how is it that a text about war and in which uh, Krishna calls to Arjuna to fight, to follow his dharma, how is it that this text could be seen as a text of a unitic vision and even a peaceful vision by Gandhi and by Thoreau, how is this possible? And I think your question, Michael, raises that issue that here is a tradition 
in which the call to Dharma or that deep commitment to one's life, what, what is the sincere life one is called to, one would say living cosmology that one is called to, it's a sense of the higher unity that once one realizes that deep dharmic drive in the universe and how one is called to it, that suddenly those uh, acts of violence, those sense of involving one in ego, they become lesser drives, a lesser life, and one aspires to the, the higher life. So even a text which situates war can be a text leading to a higher mystical vision. That's beautiful, and I love the idea. Did you tell me it was near your 39th anniversary? Did I hear that? 29th. 29th, all right. I gave you an extra 10 years. It's, it's wonderful to me that on your 29th anniversary, by the way, my wife and I had our 24th anniversary this uh, past week, too. So. What's wonderful! <laughs> but it's, it's wonderful that on your 29th anniversary, you're taking walks together and choosing texts and reflecting on them together. I think that's such a lovely uh, description of a life partnership. Uh, absolutely. I, I would like to take you, Mary Evelyn, a little further into the Asian traditions. You, you recently uh, published a, a book on, on uh, Asian spirituality. Could you tell us a little about it? Yes, well, John and, and you, Michael, are kind to draw that out. Um, th- that was actually a 25-year journey, most of our, our married life, actually, for that book. Um, but it comes out of this fascinating Japanese figure in the 17th century. His name is Kaibata Eken, and he was... The book is called The Philosophy of Qi um, that, that Columbia published, but it's a translation of his wrestling with these issues, actually, of what we were just talking about, of unity and diversity. And he was trying to sort out the relationship of Qi, which is translated in many ways, but vital energy, material force, um, with another notion of principle called Li. And he was trying to say that within Qi, we see this expression of, of an organized reality, uh, of a diversified reality, and that's the lead. But this argument was, was very vital and, and, um, and very much uh, discussed across East Asia from China to Korea and Japan, and there were three leading figures, and he's the leading figure in Japan of this discussion. He's actually called the Aristotle of Japan, too, because... He wanted to understand the form within matter itself so that the, the veins of a leaf reveal to us the form, just as, as a, or an acorn becoming an oak tree. It gives us that kind of inner form of things. So he felt that to understand chi and, and the relationship to principle was also a way of cultivating ourselves in relation to nature as, as we investigated the natural world, which he did in in whole botanical studies of plants and animals and fish and so on. He felt this connected us to this vital force in reality. And um, therefore, we weren't just withdrawing from nature into some kind of mystical inner essence, but we were connecting to and experiencing that um, vital force um, in nature. And through that, contributing to sustainable societies. This was the Confucian effort was how do we create flourishing, functioning, sustainable societies that has education at the core and political harmony um, at the center as well? Confucianism has a lot to offer our time. 
And Confucianism deeply interested Thomas Berry, if I remember correctly. Exactly. Confucianism and the indigenous traditions were two of his very key inspirations. And he, in fact, spent time in China with my professor de Berry at Columbia in, in 48-49. And Thomas always felt that that unity described as heaven, earth, and human, that the humans completed um, this, these vast cosmological forces described as the 10,000 things, or heaven and earth, and that the human has this special role within Confucianism, not uh, dissimilar to Teilhard, in fact, as the co-creator with these dynamic um, forces of the universe. And that's why um, the role of the human as, as establishing um, a, a, an engaged politics, a, an effective educational system, and harmonious societies were the guiding principles um, for, for Confucian literati, scholars, and officials. And it's why it's, it's one of the oldest continuing civilizations in the, in the, on the planet. And I recall an essay of Thomas's uh, some years back on authenticity and affectivity. And I believe that essay was uh, published also in the Confucian Spirituality volumes that Mary Evelyn and Du Wei Ming uh, jointly edited. And the the use of those two terms from Confucian thought, authenticity, the deepest uh, cosmological dimension of the human, authenticity, and then affectivity, our way to coming to know that deep authenticity. I, I'm so struck by the emphasis in Thomas's uh, reflection that it wasn't simply our rational intelligence that gave us our distinguishing human characteristic, but that deep affectivity, as if ways of coming to know were also embedded in the senses. It wasn't embodied knowing. And although Thomas didn't pursue that dimension of his thinking, that's become a, a signal of, of a pathway for my own thinking of late to try and draw out what it is that he was hinting at. Yes, that idea of, of, of humanity, of each of us as, as co-creators with the, the great force in the universe uh, is a striking one. I know one finds it in uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel's work, the great Jewish mystic scholar, uh, uh, and throughout uh, mystical Judaism. Uh, I wonder, since you all have looked at so many traditions, uh, is that sense of humanity as, as a co-creator uh, with the, the great force in the universe uh, of, uh, of uh, the, the creation, the ongoing creation, is that widespread or is that uh, restricted to, uh, to certain specific traditions? Well, I would say that the, the Confucian and the Taoists have the most highly developed sense of that. And um, the Confucians... Um, speak of the human as the mind and heart of heaven and earth, that affective dimension that Sean just mentioned. But in the East Asian world, this sense of mind and heart is one. It's not a, a dualistic understanding. Um, and I think that um, that, that sense of, of co-creator comes as well from a very ancient idea from the Book of History in the Confucian classics, where the, the notion is heaven is one's father, earth is one's mother, and one is a child of the universe. And therefore, the notion of filial piety that's, that's so deeply embedded in, in the East Asian world, the notion is one gives back reverence and care 
to all of cre creation because that's which that has birthed us, that has given us life. So it's a very, very powerful um, sense of um, of the human as part of these processes and as heaven and earth as our parents, literally. One way that I think about the question you've asked to Michael with regard to co-creativity is that in those religious traditions that reflect upon creativity in the context of creation or of the world, of the cosmos, that they come to a sense of uh, human knowledge as uh, a source of creativity in relationship to the world. So this, there's this interesting co-creativity. I, I find it in indigenous traditions very clearly expressed that it's not just uh, spirits in the world so that animism uh, kind of explains that off the table then, but rather it's much more co-creativity, that there is something in the world in which human knowledge, this, this embodied knowledge, can enter into creativity. And in some of the religious traditions, I think the Abrahamic traditions are more in this regard, that reflection upon existence brought those traditions to the Creator as the source of creativity. So that became a primary drive, was to attribute to the Creator ultimate creativity, and that the, the capacity or possibility for co-creatorship was diminished, and that human knowledge was seen as in relationship to this divine creativity. Speaking of co-creativity, uh, one of the themes we haven't touched on yet is ecofeminism. Um, as you both know, the term was originally used by the French feminist Françoise uh, de Bonnel in 1974 and, and was hailed as the third wave of feminism. Um, and uh, one of the volumes uh, from the Forum on Religion and Ecology, which you both co-direct, uh, is called Ecofeminism, an Overview, uh, by Lois Ann Lorenzen and Heather Eaton, who uh, you mentioned as we chatted before we began, uh, has been influenced by Thomas Berry. Uh, I noticed, uh, at least in my brief reading uh, in preparing for this conversation of Thomas Berry's work, I didn't see much reference to uh, ecofeminism in his work. And I wonder if you could comment on... Uh, uh, the the spiritual dimension of ecofeminism uh, in relationship to Barry and your own your own thoughts about its uh, particular contribution. Well, Thomas has has actually referred um, to the importance of the feminine, as has Teilhard um, in his work and his thinking. Some of this will appear in the new volume of essays that we're editing of Thomas's work right now, where. For him, the, the image of the Earth Mother um, is very profound. And in fact, when I first met Thomas um, in about 1975, one of the very first books he urged me to read was called The Earth Mother by Eric Neumann about the symbolism of, of the of Mother Earth in, in the various world religions. And um, so Thomas has been influenced by this, this notion, and certainly um, we are deeply appreciative of the complex um, and varied contributions of ecofeminists, ranging from Carolyn Merchant's extraordinary work on the death of nature, um, showing the degradation of nature and the degradation of, of women as very parallel, to work such as Charlene Spretnik's um, and Rosemary Ruther and Sally McFaig and all of these, um, many of these theologians 
um, have participated in the conference series and, and uh, as I say, we're deeply resonant with their work. So um, I think that, that there's no question that um, this needs to be further highlighted and explored because more recent work, of course, is, is trying to say that it's not just an essentialism of, of nature or earth and women, but it needs to be further complexified. Um, and I think that's the development of womanist spirituality and, and others in this area. So this connection uh, between the domination of women and the domination of nature seems to be a central uh, theme in, in ecofeminism. Uh, I wonder if we, if anyone, has extended that uh, to think about, as you were just suggesting in a way, Mary Evelyn, the, the 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 feminine within all of us, male and female, the degree to which uh, our feminine side has uh, has suffered uh, uh, because of uh, the domination of. Uh, the global machine. Well, I love that, and I think that's absolutely true. And um, I think it's uh, it's one of the ways in in which I value our relationship, John, and mine, because I think he understands and is so close to the feminine uh, qualities of of life and the power and passion of creativity in individuals in the universe, and knows how to support that um, hugely. So I think it's. It's nurturing our feminine side amidst a hugely patriarchal society. And um, I can say my experience in academia has been just completely dominated you know, by male ways of thinking and, and so on. So we do suffer from this distortion uh, of our world uh, that has led to militarism and exploitation of the environment and abuse of women and, and so on. So this is all part of a transformation that's taking place right now um, and how to keep alive the feminine in all of us and uh, is, is absolutely essential. And I'm struck, Michael, by your phrase, the global machine, which flows so easily from that uh, objectifying of this living world around us and our, our subsequent treatment of that world as uh, objects for our use. That that's become so embedded in our ways of relating to one another and to the world. You know, one of the things I've noticed uh, as as I've grown older is that I used to think of uh, of adults or older adults as sort of set in their ways and and not changing. But I find in my own inner life that the the dynamic remains very very strong. And I, I wanted to ask each of you as we come to a close, uh, starting with you, John. Where are you personally in your inner journey right now? What are uh, what are the uh, the texts or the traditions that you find yourself exploring and that are most alive for you as we speak today? I'm still very committed to the exploration of diverse indigenous traditions because of their rich creativity. So I find that still, uh, as I prepare for the a teaching of a course this semester at Yale on American Indian religions and ecology, and I, I find myself uh, reading more in Yupik, in Alaskan uh, Inuit peoples, and in their relationship to American Indian peoples in the lower 48, and the richness of these traditions and their, their sense of reflection uh, upon the, the dominant 
American tradition. Uh, I'm very intrigued by ways in which indigenous people have seen us in all of our nervous energy and uh, that these types of reflections then call me to uh, assess this, uh, this question of living cosmology. And Mary Evelyn? Well, it's a wonderful question, Michael, and um, I look forward to keeping in touch as we, as we our journeys interweave, I, I trust. Um, and I think one of the things um, I'm hoping for is to dive into the depths of, of things in the sense of um, journeying even further into the um, interior path where the spirit rises up, um, especially for, for some writing that I'm eager to do that might express some of the things that we've been talking about here of um, how in these times of such sorrow and such loss can we sustain uh, a hopeful way forward, a sense of the energies of the universe inspiring us and of, of a, a thoughts for future generations of, of how they will live on, on the diminished planet. But in particular, I'm, I'm hoping to evoke what I might speak about as maybe spiritual nature writing or something along those, those lines that would be accessible um, way beyond um, academic or scholarly concerns, but um, would, would speak to this resonance that we all feel as humans in the face of glorious sunsets or Bellinas weather patterns and so on. So that's what I'm hoping uh, to do, and, and um, I hope it will be with a larger community of people and um, along those Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm, thank you both so much for joining us at the New School. It's been a wonderful occasion to be with you. Thank you, Michael, and we wish you all the best in your very, very important work for people and the planet. Yeah. Thank you both. So now, uh, any of you who are listening uh, and would like to uh, ask uh, Mary Evelyn or John a question or um, make a comment, uh, if you can push star seven on your phone to unmute yourself and, and please identify yourself and uh, join the conversation. We welcome it. Don't be shy. Hi, this is Catherine Baumgartner. Um, and I had a question um, about the earlier part of the conversation relating... Could you speak up a little, Catherine? Sure. Um, my question is about the earlier part of the conversation um, where you were talking about the Brian Swim and Thomas Berry and this um, idea of creating a new story. Yes. A, sort of a new cosmological story. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit about how, how does this new story relate to the cosmologies that already exist in various cultures and um, how, how is this new story different, or does it uh, seek to encompass all of those? Or? That's a great question. Uh, Mary Evelyn and John? Well, it's a, it's a very key question for sure, because science is giving us empirical revelation um, of its unfolding and its um, self-organizing dynamics and so on. And we've had creation stories, of course, from the various world religions, and I would say we're in a period, as Thomas says, between stories, where Genesis as a mythically inspired uh, creation story um, wouldn't be a scientific story any longer. 
And so how we find our orientation and our ethics and values and our even ecological commitments um, at this point in time is, is what's at stake here. Um, I don't think that the universe story has to negate um, earlier stories, but we have to see them um, as different. And the encompassing nature um, of the universe story, I think, can be very inspiring um, as, as ways in which to reappreciate the differentiated stories of the world's religions um, as, as mythology. Um, and so, but I think it will be an increasingly critical issue for all of us to think about. Yes, I'm, I appreciate Mary Evelyn's sense of the, uh, the caveat with regard to a meta-narrative or a narrative that would sweep away others, that the universe story as uh, Teilhard or Thomas Berry or Brian Swim are presenting it is, is not seen as that type of, uh, of narrative, but rather I think in the, in the older uh, traditions of the human family in which a narrator would interact with her audience and the expectation of the narrator in the audience was not that of, a, of an audience listening to an expert, but rather a co-creative activity in which the narrator himself would hear new interpretations, new understanding coming out of the audience, and that sense of multiple interpretations, I think is part of then the relationship of this universe story to other narratives, other cosmological stories in the religions. These are all interpretive moments that are interacting with this new emerging story. And so it's not a matter of eliminating, but hearing how these religions are speaking to this new emerging story. That's just a really great question, and I'd love to follow up, but I, I want to give others a chance. I may follow up if there's a silence. Are there other questions, please? Well, I may get to follow up here. Uh, uh, I'd like to follow up in this way. It seems to me there are two ways in which the scientific uh, narrative that Barry described as unfolding of, of the universe story uh, doesn't sweep away the prior stories. One is that um, in a Jungian sense, uh, the prior stories are these great uh, intrapsychic uh, narratives of, uh, of inner evolution in engagement with what was experienced of the universe uh, that really... Um, are the the inner traditions from which we come, and it, it seems to me that far from being swept away, that that as I think you were both suggesting, that we understand these earlier narratives in that inner way. And the the second point is that I think we have to remember that that precisely because science keeps changing and. and that science, as we understand it, the, the scientific vision of the universe is probably radically incomplete. And that although we may understand certain dimensions of, of physical nature better and better, uh, it's quite possible that a hundred years from now, uh, that our understanding of the complexity of the worlds upon worlds that we may be part of may reconnect us with the earlier traditions and with their perceptions uh, in in ways that are not only inner in a subjective sense, 
but connected to other dimensions of reality that, that really we have no other perception of now other than through the great uh, religious and spiritual traditions. I appreciate your reflection, Michael, so much the, the distinction of the inner journey and then the scientific story as bringing us to uh, some significant new reflection on the outer journey or the encounter with the, the world, so to speak, out there. And we realize that uh, we have thought of ourselves as having an interior and that the world is out there. And suddenly now the universe story, this new story, is putting us in terms of the inner dimension of the world. And that, that's a remarkable connection to the point you've just made, I believe, that the, the great religions and their interior reflections, and here now we are seeing ourselves in our emphasis upon genetic uh, sameness with the world, and the atomic, the subatomic sameness, that we are in the interior of the cosmos. Yes, and that's why this notion of humans as the heart-mind of the universe uh, needs to be reinterpreted within this framework of universe story. And we're working on a film with uh, Brian Swim precisely along these lines to tell the story um, in a, for a PBS special, a two-hour special, um, that will have not just a, a Nova PBS kind of feeling, here's the science, but what does this mean for us as, as our spiritual journey unfolds with this new knowledge? I think we all feel we're at, at, at an explosion of consciousness in certain ways and, and an explosion of spiritual seeking and depth um, with this loss of life, with this pollution of the planet, with this environmental sickness that, that is so widespread. This is forcing um, a, a deepening of consciousness and, and spirituality. And that, of course, is a very positive side of the sense of, of diminishment that we're experiencing. So I, I fully agree that this question is at the heart of matter, if you will, um, and needs a lot more uh, exploration. When you both speak of, of this explosion of consciousness coming at this time of unbelievable uh, destruction and toxicity and, uh, and uh, degradation of life, I wonder if it takes you where it takes me as I've spent 30 years sort of reflecting on the interface of personal and planetary health that, you know, in our work in the Cancer Help Program uh, that one so often sees, or when I had a heart attack myself, that that when, when our lives are greatly threatened, uh, it is often a time when there is this enormous expansion of consciousness. Um, and so it doesn't seem an accident to me that at a time that that humanity has achieved the capacity to threaten all life on Earth, uh, that that we as a species are experiencing the same explosion of consciousness that one so often sees in an individual life when an individual life is threatened or indeed coming toward its end. Yes, this, uh, your comments, Michael, put me in mind of an a, a, a ongoing interest I've had in uh, the healing a dimension of, uh, of uh, associated with religions that we oftentimes call shamanism or associated with healers in native traditions who come to this realization and this practice by virtue of their own 
illness or their own sickness. And it is in dealing with that sickness or having been brought through that sickness by a healer that they themselves become healers. And I, I think that's somewhat descriptive, as I hear you talk also, of our times, that we are in the midst of this, and yet at the same at the time as uh, we are in the midst of this pathology, we begin to, to glimpse a vision, a new vision of ourselves and a way out, a pathway towards new understanding of ourselves. Yeah, my, my brother sent me this uh, rather beautiful phrase from Teresa of Avila, the great Christian mystic of Spain, and it, it goes like this, and God is always there if you feel wounded. He kneels over this earth like a divine medic, and his love thaws the holy in us. Oh, that's so exquisite. Could you say that again, just so we can all absorb it? And God is always there if you feel wounded. He kneels over this earth like a divine medic, and his love thaws the holy in us. The sense that we're all being thawed, I think, for some deeper realization of the presence of the Holy. It's very, very encouraging. I'm going to pause for a minute to see if there are others and then continue the questions. Uh, are that's, there thaw, that's thaw is in ice? Yes, Barry. Thaw is in ice. I think. Yes, thaw. Yes, thaw is in ice. Yeah. Yes. I have a couple of questions. Yes, please. Identify yourself. This, sorry, this is Catherine again. Um, uh, just one comment to follow up on what Marilyn Evelyn was just saying, um, or Mary Evelyn, sorry. Could you speak up, please? Sure. I recently discovered a, a group, um, and I, frankly, it's, uh, it's in an Inuit language, the name of the, the group and also of the primary teacher. I can't pronounce them, but um, they're, uh, the way they speak about their teaching is, is very similar. They, they talk about melting the ice in the heart of man. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a, a website that talks about their teachings. It's icewisdom.com. Mm. Um, might be interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and it, it's, it's really beautiful. And there's also a, a webcast of an interview with him um, that I would be happy to send a link to somebody on where he, just, he talks about uh, the the relationship between the his the spirituality of his culture and the view of the the need to tend to the the healing of the earth it has a lot to do with this idea of, of awakening the um, the tenderness in the hearts of, of humankind mm. so, um, beautiful yeah yeah so that was just a thought to follow up and also to um, another question then is about I don't know if I can articulate this, but uh, I'm, I'm interested to know if there have been any discussions uh, in the research and the, the dialogue that you have both been a part of around the, the experience of, um, of spirituality and whether it seems as though it's almost become more of an individualized thing. Um, that our culture these days focuses so much on the, on the individual and the individual experience of healing and the individual perception of the world and even with, you know, technology seems to be reinforcing that with how easy it is to sort of exist in one's own 
little microcosm and send out messages through email. Um, and yet, uh, as you were saying, John, that uh, in the telling of these great stories, it is a collective experience. It's an exchange between the teller and the listener. And so I'm, just, I'm curious how, um, how is there, how can we experience a new story? Is it possible to do that in a collective way in a culture that needs so much to reinforce the experience of the individual? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the Live Earth concert over the weekend is indicative of a certain kind of community that's emerging. I know there were criticisms about carbon footprint and cost and so on, but, um, but I think there's a huge consciousness emerging, certainly about climate change and the state of the planet, and as well the vast inequity between the North and the South that develops in the developing world and the issue of poverty, which um, you know, rises up continually to remind us of that, that um, we can only solve these problems with a much vaster sense of community than we've had. And in fact, the legacy of the Enlightenment period of the 18th century has been individualism in its forms of, of democratic principles and so on, but um, we're reminded that liberty and equality uh, have been far out front, but fraternity or sorority, we might say, community has, has not yet been realized, which is why our real challenge is um, to overcome nationalism and so on, but to join the earth community, as Thomas Berry might say. Um, and that is something that I think we're all seeking deeply, deeply. I'm reminded also of uh, the connection with Teilhard, who has given some, uh, not so much credit, but foresight perhaps, in his uh, articulation of the newosphere, or the sphere of the earth, being uh, uh, covered with the noose or the, the mind of the human and this new sphere then being seen as uh, Teilhard's the foresight of the internet and this global communication and Thomas would reflect on Teilhard's uh, insight into new sphere as uh, a responsibility that the, the human coming to understand not ourselves it's not simply those who have uh, reflective capacity, uh, this uh, reflective consciousness, but rather a, a consciousness that is in attunement with the earth that we inhabit, that we encompass. And so Thomas would, Thomas Berry would make these comments that we are not able to make a blade of grass, and yet there is liable not to be a blade of grass in the future if we do not take responsibility for the nurturing and sustaining of the earth and community that uh, gives rise to that blade of grass. So his effort to really see into the inside of Teilhard and to go that next step towards responsibility for the community of life. Other questions, please. I'd like to go back, uh, John, to your earlier comments about shamanism and also a, a couple of other points about uh, your your work with indigenous peoples. Uh, but first, the shamanism point. Um, I forget where I read it, but uh, it could have been in Michael Harner's work. It could have been in Marcia Eliade's work on shamanism, but I believe it may have been Harner, who pointed out that... Uh, Shamanism was really a 
a universal phenomenon in all the indigenous communities uh, around the world. And therefore, that along with the incest taboo, which is also universal, it seems to emerge from the bedrock of human consciousness. That is, it is in some sense, uh, if he's correct, uh, uh, culturally invariant in the sense that it, it emerges, it is emergent everywhere. And uh, as you mentioned, the, the, the core experience of the shaman, uh, the, the shamanic initiatory illness, is an illness where the shaman becomes close to death and then realizes that his or her role is to accompany others on this journey and that the greatest loss that they face is not the loss of life itself, it's soul loss. And that the role of the shaman is to protect the person that they are accompanying from soul loss. So if that is so, and please correct me if it's not so, one could say if, if the shamanic uh, impulse is as connected with the bedrock of being human as the incest taboo, then in a sense we all have that shamanic uh, capacity within us. And uh, therefore, in this time where the enormous destruction creates such a profound sense of despair for so many thousands and millions of people, perhaps the shamanic work of our time is to accompany the human community through this period and to protect the human community from soul loss. And I just wonder... Is that resonant with your experience? Have I gotten anything wrong there? Because it's a, a beginner's mind operating here. Uh, it's the accomplished amateur, if you would call yourself a beginner, because I find that such a powerful insight, Michael. The, the image that's coming to my mind as I listen to you in, in such a, a depth of insight is the uh, exchange with a Korean mudong or shamanist 20 years ago in which, of course, I had my own patterns of understanding shamanism that I wanted her to conform to. And she was, of course, in her own creative disposition in her work. And one of the uh, issues that I was hoping to hear was uh, her ritual would uh, recreate the situation in which she was initially healed. And as I was listening to her talk, I, I wasn't quite hearing that uh, that pattern reassert itself, but I heard something new that re resonates with me all these years and to the remarks that you made. When I asked her, what is it that made you a shaman? What is it that you experience again, feel again when you uh, perform your ritual? And she looked me in the eye and she said, when the Japanese came to Korea at the turn of the century, they mined the country of Korea, they dug in the earth and they, they cut the rivers and they used the waters and that they, uh, they damaged the Korea, the country of Korea and that's the recovery that I'm about also is to restore Koreans to their land and it was not just a nationalistic, it had some of that resonance to it but it was a deeper issue of this soul loss that I'm hearing in your remarks to Michael of trying to lead the people that she was uh, uh, in relationship to as a healer, trying to lead them 
into a recovery of that depth relationship with the place where they are. And in fact, she said, we lost many of our powers because of the stripping of the, the deep elements um, in mining and, and so forth. But I, I just wanted to say, Michael, I think it's an extraordinarily powerful and evocative image, the sense of soul loss and the shamanic journey, because um, again, Thomas Berry would often speak about this in, a, in an analogous way, that, that the soul of the, of the earth is um, what's what's being lost as we're diminishing life forms. Um, and he would speak about it as the revelation of a divine voice. So we're, we're losing our soul, and we are losing the sense of meeting um, a divine force within the natural world. And that's causing addiction, despair, paralysis, uh, and so on. So I love, I love what you've just said. I think it's quite extraordinary, quite beautiful and powerful. Well, thank you. And it, it, it connects to the, the second uh, point I wanted to make, going back to something I read of, of John's work, where, uh, John, you spoke in, in so many indigenous communities, it's true that, that, uh, that multinational corporations are exploiting uh, indigenous lands uh, with the assistance of the nation states within which these indigenous uh, lands uh, exist. And uh, so what's really striking to me about the contribution of indigenous wisdom is that uh, the indigenous peoples really are living uh, at the, the tip of the sword of, of whatever we want to call the, the, the world machine. And uh, that they have on the one hand this deep, deep connection uh, to the community of earth and to the specific ecosystems uh, uh, with which they live. And on the other hand, in a particularly naked way, they uh, face the exploitation of, of these multinational corporations. And so the question of how their voices are raised as part of this movement of consciousness is, is a particularly critical one. I was uh, reading this morning and I don't have the book with me, but the volume about uh, the, uh, the indigenous community in Latin America, I'm sure you know them, who refer to them as the older brothers of uh, the rest of us who have, have come to warn us. Uh, can you provide the citation there and say either something specifically about that community or something more broadly about this point? I don't uh, have that particular citation in mind right now, but I think the indigenous environmental network is one source to reflect upon the, the now global interaction of indigenous people by virtue of uh, internet connections where they are speaking to one another and becoming much more aware of the, the, the particular pressures that each are feeling. And your image, of Michael, of, the, of indigenous people at the, uh, the tip of the sword is so telling. I'm thinking of the persistent organic pollutants which aggregate, especially in the, the bodies, the fatty tissues of all living creatures in the northern and southern regions, but especially in the Arctic regions and native peoples in those regions who are subject to this intense toxicity where they are nowhere near the production and not responsible for that production. Still, they, they suffer that. And the, 
an image that comes to my mind of a Papua New Guinea, a leader, Simeon Damunu, who's uh, since passed on, and his, uh, his home island of Misima. And then when I look on the globe, it is so far removed from all of these centers of industrial activity and the islands going off of Papua New Guinea, and yet on Misima Island, intense mining to the point where they had degraded the the sources of water on the island so that native peoples are indeed under these incredible pressures. Yeah, and the conference at Harvard uh, really reflected that, that John put together with native peoples from every continent, and the, the book that came out of that represents this huge solidarity of not only loss of biodiversity, but cultural diversity around the planet. But um, the persistence and power and inspiration of indigenous peoples, uh, such as Orin Lyon and this traditional circle of elders um, here on the North American continent, is um, something we can all draw strength from, I think. Well, we're at the end of our time, and again, this has been just a, a really wonderful conversation. So, Mary Evelyn and John, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we look forward to many, many future exchanges with you. Thank you, and bless your work. Wonderful. Maybe you can let your listeners know of the Harvard website, too, or if they want. Yeah, please give it to us. Okay, it's environment.harvard.edu backslash religion. And they can also sign up for emails about religion and ecology, which they would write for, F-O-R-E, at religionandecology.org. That's for, F-O-R-E, at religionandecology.org. And let me just also mention that if you Google Forum on Religion and Ecology or Google Mary Evelyn Tucker or John Grimm, or go to the New School website, uh, you can uh, connect to all these many resources. Thank you both again. This is a wonderful activity. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Bye-bye.